Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Sachs's Essay Today podcast. My name is Michelle Botcher, and I'm an associate professor at Clemson University. I'm also your host for this program. Today, I'm very pleased to have Dr. Ty McNamee at the University of Mississippi as our guest. Ty, thank you so much for making some time and joining us on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me and for the invite. Absolutely. Before we're we're going to talk about your career and your your work and scholarship and all of that. But before we go there, let's learn a little bit more about you. Who are you outside of work? Um, if you have hobbies you want to talk about, things you're reading, watching, listening to, whatever you would like to share. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I very much try to balance uh, work and my personal life, and so I do have um, hobbies uh, out in the world that I try to do outside of work. Uh, so I eat a lot of food. Um, I definitely love food. Um, I'm in the South now, so it's a good place to be um, for uh, having good food. Uh, I travel a lot. Um, I especially travel to see friends and family. Um, I'm originally from Wyoming, which we'll get into. And so I go back to the Mountain West a lot. I see friends in DC and New York and other places. So it's, it's really fun to do that. Um, I try to go to the gym, uh, you know, even if I'm not feeling it, at least it can help me be a little bit more physically and mentally healthy. Um, and as far as what I'm reading and watching, listening to, uh, I um, just finished a couple books this summer. I'm finally getting to read uh, for personal you know, pleasure now that I'm done with my doctoral program. And read this book um, called In the Lives of Puppets. And so it's by this um, queer author called T.J. Clune. And T.J. writes books that always you know, are a little bit whimsical, a little bit deep, and always usually have some sort of queer romance or characters or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so this book was really good. And it was, um, a, you know, thinking about in the future, you know, what if robots were running everything, um, but there was one human alive? And what would that sort of like, how would that play out? And it was really funny. It was really cool. So I enjoyed that book. And I just finished another book last night called The Midnight Library. Very multiverse. Yeah, like what would happen, you know, if you could relive all your regrets again. So yeah, I'm reading some good books this summer. Um, I saw the Barbie movie last weekend. I've been listening to the soundtrack from that. I feel like people are sleeping on the Khalid song from that soundtrack. So I've been listening to that a lot. Um, and then my podcast, like since we're on the podcast, I listen to a lot of things that are nostalgic, I guess. So I am listening to the rewatch podcasts about Boy Meets World and Will and Grace. And uh, this one podcast called 60 Songs That Explain the 90s. And so um, now I think it's up to like 90 or 120 songs that explain the 90s. But um, yeah, I definitely try to pass the time with lots of different activities and hobbies outside of work. Well, thank you for that. I'm like jotting down things. I have read The Midnight Library, but the rest is all nice. new to me. So I appreciate that very much. Well, let's talk Good. a little bit about how did you get where you are today? You know, what's been your journey into higher education as a student and then kind of through to, to your position now? You know, for people listening who have heard this story before, I have to apologize in advance. I always tell this story because it's really important to me and it very much describes how I got into higher education. I grew up on a farm and ranch in rural Wyoming. I was a working class student there um, with my twin brother, with my mom, and eventually um, my stepdad when we were 13 and they, my mom and stepdad got married. 
you know, growing up on a farm and ranch in rural Wyoming was a really cool experience. Lots of outdoors and lots of, you know, working class activities. You know, I'm from a town of about 600 people. So it was it was really interesting to grow up in such a small, tight knit community. Um, but when I got to the University of Wyoming, I faced a lot of experiences and barriers that I now know can really be related to my sort of rural working class upbringing. And so my first year, you know, it was really tough transitioning into a larger environment and a more rigorous coursework than I was used to trying to make, you know, new friends. And um, I also identify as gay. So I was trying to navigate being in like a queer community for the first time. And so there was a lot of sort of experiences that shaped my first year and unfortunately, some of them in negative ways. And so I ended up um, almost going on academic probation and almost transferring out my first year. Um, And it wasn't, you know, if it wasn't for faculty and staff and family and friends that I was able to lean on, um, I wouldn't have been able to, you know, survive beyond that first year in college. And so I was able to bounce back, you know, I got involved on campus, um, did the sort of like higher ed and student affairs trajectory where you get involved in student government and admissions and all of that. Um, But it was because of those, you know, faculty and staff that were in those positions um, helping me that I was able to get to where I, you know, wanted to be. And so I really wanted to be that for other students. And so I knew, you know, about halfway or, you know, two thirds of the way through my um, college career that I wanted to go into higher ed and student affairs. I heard that you could do that for a living and that sounded cool to me. Um, And so I applied to programs and ended up at the University of Connecticut. Um, I'm wearing my UConn shirt today for listeners who can't see, but I got into the, you know, HESA program there, um, but I couldn't really figure out what I wanted to do as far as administration. in the functional area beyond, you know, HESA. And so it was very serendipitous. Um, We had a professor, Milagros Castillo Montoya, who I'll only shout out because she really changed the trajectory of my life in such a positive way. And I approached her after class to talk about her experience as a practitioner. And she actually was the first person to ask me, why aren't you considering pursuing a doctorate after higher education, you know, your higher ed and student affairs degree? Um, and I, I didn't know, and I didn't know about the scholarly world of studying higher ed and being a faculty member. And so she, um, along with Kenny Neenhusser, who was at the University of Hartford, but is now at UConn as well, they both really showed me sort of like what it can mean to study higher ed and learn about higher ed from a scholarly perspective. And they uh, guided me through the sort of applications to doctoral programs. And so I ended up at Teachers College at Columbia University and was very happy about that. But, you know, in my doctoral application process, Dr. Castillo Montoya, you know, she asked me, what are my research interests? And I was, again, these are questions I'd never been asked before, I'd never thought about before. And for some reason, like, I really do feel like it was a spiritual or universal or some sort of force out there made me think, you know, there weren't a lot of people looking at rural poor working class students like me. And so I told that to Dr. Castillo Montoya, and she said, you know, you can make that sort of the crux of your research interests and talk about access and equity and success for these students. And so I did. And I was lucky to um, study under Noah Dresner at Teachers College. And I only joke that I'm sort of his like, you know, random rural student studying rural issues. Um, But he studied a lot about identity and how that shapes, you know, experiences and ultimately giving back to your institution. And so he guided me through a lot of my research 
And I really looked at rural students, especially those who are poor and working class, rural faculty development, rural college teaching and learning, as well as now this sort of burgeoning area of my research around rural queer students. But at the crux of it was this idea about rurality. And so really, um, you know, that's the center of my research agenda. And that's where I got how I got to where I am today is I'm just really passionate about making sure that these rural small town students can get to college and get through college and that we're supporting them and that, you know, what they need um, as they, you know, go along those trajectories. So that's a little bit about how I got to where I am today. And it was quite the journey, but I'm, you know, happy to be in a faculty role at the University of Mississippi where I'm in a, rural, a really rural state. There's a lot of rural poor and working class folks. And we talk about, you know, how do we provide access and success for um, those students, you know, once they're at the University of Mississippi or at other higher education institutions in the state. I really appreciate that. And I, I especially appreciate, you know, when you talk about starting out and that you struggled academically. I tell my students all the time. I probably couldn't have gotten into the Clemson program with my undergrad GPA because I think there's sort of this mythology that if you're a faculty member, you've just sort of, I won't say coasted, but yeah. maybe not struggled academically. And that's not necessarily the case. And we need scholars with all different kinds of lived experiences. So, And I'm very open that. and honest about that because... Yeah. My uh, a GPA was a 2.25 my first year of college. And then, you know, when I applied to doctoral programs, I got rejected from all but Columbia. And, you know, really is people say you just need one. And yeah. so places like UConn and Teachers College, they really took a chance on a student like me, um, you know, from the middle of Wyoming. And I'm glad that they did because I am where I am today because of those places. I love that. And important for people as we enter into the next admission cycle to really think about students holistically. And we talk a lot about, you know, GPA and standardized testing, but I, I worry that it's still an easy thing to lean on because yeah. everybody's got a GPA. So exactly. you mentioned a few people as you were talking who have really been instrumental in your trajectory. Do you want to highlight a few more? And I, as I've started to ask this question, I know it's it's unfair because it's like people will say it's like the Oscars speech and who am I going to forget, you know, down right. the line. But if there are a few people that you want to talk about, I think it helps us as a larger network of professionals and faculty and practitioners and students just see, oh, yeah, I know that person, too. And we really are pretty closely connected. So who are some other people you might like to highlight? Yeah, so I really, again, want to shout out um, Kenny Neenhusser and Milagros Castillo-Montoya at UConn. They're my mentors. They're my friends. I keep in contact with them all the time. And honestly, without them, my like I said, my career trajectory would not be where it is. Very glad that they're in my life. Um, I want to say the same for, you know, again, Noah Dresner um, at Teachers College. There are so many things within the black box of academia that I do not understand, especially, you know, as someone who comes from a working class background. And Noah has just helped me so much navigate that space. Um, we just met even last week and talked about things that are confusing in the world of academia. And so he continues to sort of um, provide that information to me and be just a, such a solid support system through personal and professional stuff going on. The other people that I want to shout out, and again, like you said, there's too many people, but I know that these are my you know close friends and mentors are uh, Sanja Ardwin, um, who is in the Clemson program um, as a faculty member, 
uh, Darius Means, who's at the University of Pittsburgh, and Vanessa Sansone at the University of Texas, um, in the University of Texas system in the San Antonio campus. Those three were really, you know, they're faculty members who, when I was a doctoral student, they were looking at rural students in higher education, and there weren't very many people out there. And those three really took a chance on me as a doctoral student in working with me on research, um, allowing me to conduct research. They were really the first people that said yes when I said, I'd love to conduct some research with you on rural students in higher ed. And we've stayed friends since then um, and have been collaborating since then. And it's been such a positive experience. I keep a text thread of those three asking them questions too and um, you know, talking about rural things and personal things and everything else. And so um, I just really wanna give them a shout out because like you know, Kenny and Milagros and Noah, they have shaped my career um, in such positive ways, but they've also just been there as supporters for me through personal and professional things. So I appreciate all of those folks and many more out there in the world. Wonderful. Thanks for setting the stage for us. And let's let's talk about who you are as an academic. So when you think about your work as a teacher, what's your philosophy around that? And, you know, we're all multifaceted in our roles, but that particular angle of your work, what is your teaching philosophy? Yeah, uh, I always think about how I try to be as authentic as possible with students and be there for them as their instructor, but also a friend. And so that sort of like leads a lot of the work that I do. But when I'm thinking about like my actual teaching philosophy and sort of the tenets in that philosophy, I have like four areas that I really try to encompass um, when I'm teaching in the classroom or working with students. And so that first area is really thinking about um, this idea of teaching is like social engaged community of learners. And so Dr. Ladson Billings talked about having this sort of community of learners. And there are a ton of other, you know, teaching and learning scholars, Shulman and Rose um, out there that talk about sort of creating this community where you can ask questions, where you can bring points up, where you can discuss with one another and all in really respectful ways. But just being able to be in this sort of social community of learners where we're in this together we want to learn the subject matter together and we want to bounce ideas off one another and we want to be able to ask questions of one another um, is really important for me when I'm uh, creating a classroom. I know that students will probably say if you want to check out in Ty's class, Dr. Ty's class, it's probably not possible because I'll have everybody engaging in small groups and large group conversations. But that's, you know, sort of the way that I um Feel that we learn best is when we're learning from one another and and not just me up there at the front lecturing to folks um the, the next tenet that i really talk about is teaching teaching is deeply human i know that when i was an undergrad and i was in my graduate programs i learned so much about how to be empathic towards other people i learned so much about how to broaden my worldview and see it from other people's perspectives and i really want to make sure that when we're engaging in these conversations that i'm trying to do the same for other students and that we're working on this together to understand that a lot of the topics that we're talking about in social sciences and higher education are touching on human issues they are affecting human beings and so i really want to make sure that and we're fostering these discussions, we're using empathy, um, and we're broadening our worldviews to think about how these would really be affecting, um, you know, those humans that are out there living in the world. And so that's really important for me. And then when I'm working with my students, I want us to see each other as deeply human as well. And so having empathy towards each other, having respect towards each other, and making sure that we understand how these issues have impacted each other as well, I think is really important. 
Uh, the next one that I always talk about um, is this idea of sort of personalizing um, experiences. Yes, I want us to all walk away with like a pretty solid understanding of the academic subject matter. But at the end of the day, students will come from their own backgrounds. They'll have their own identities. They'll have their own passions and their own interests. And so anytime that I can sort of tailor the academic subject matter to those interests to sort of tie it into the passions that students already have is really important for me. So if I know that a student is coming with me with a certain set of identities and they're talking about how they want to do research in that area or they want to learn more in that area, I'll talk about how the academic subject matter might, you know, touch those specific set of identities or that, you know, background that they have and how we can sort of like tie that in. Um, I'll think about who I can connect them with in, in the field who might have shared identities with them. And so um, I think as long, you know, when you can take that academic subject matter and say, how does this really impact me to make that a personalized experience for students? And then finally, uh, this one I think is sort of the most important. And so um, I always have it as its own tenet, but this idea that teaching should be a way to dismantle inequities. And so I sort of think that of that in two ways. We know that higher education was founded for, you know, privileged white males. And so we really have to sort of reconcile with that um, when we're talking about issues in the classroom and think about how can we make higher education more accessible, more inclusive, you know, more empowering and more liberating for folks who do not have those identities, who have minoritized and marginalized identities. And so when we're going through our academic subject matter, I oftentimes try to touch on that no matter what class I'm teaching, um, so that we can think about how we make this sort of higher education space more equitable, inclusive for all folks in higher education, but particularly those who higher ed wasn't built for. And so the academic subject matter itself, I think, is really important when we're talking about dismantling inequities. But then also, you know, when we're inside a classroom space, we have to think about that's a space where we can dismantle inequities as well. So I know that I come with privileged identities of being cisgender, of being white, of being male. And so I have to sort of think about that a lot of those identities have been privileged in the higher education space. And so I have to make sure that I'm not taking up too much space as a cisgender white male in these uh, you know, classroom environments, and then I'm not letting other folks talk or bring in their worldviews and perspectives. Um, I also try to make sure that I come with identities of being rural, of being gay, of being a poor and working class student. And so I'm able to sort of use those identities to empathize with what students might be going through who are minoritized and marginalized. And so we can have these sort of like authentic, real conversations together um, in the classroom so that they feel, you know, heard and listened to. When things come up where I might be hearing that students are saying something that may be a little bit problematic or we need to push back on a little bit, if I'm using my sort of pedagogy to dismantle inequities, I can do that really respectfully in the classroom. And I think that's important as faculty members and as students as we're learning together to be able to, to create those spaces where everybody feels like they can be heard and seen. And so, um, I, I you know, those are my four tenets to my teaching philosophy. You know, at the end of the day, like I said, I really try to be authentic with students um, in the, you know, someone who's an instructor, but someone who's a friend that they can talk to and listen to it inside and outside the classroom. I imagine that your classrooms are pretty dynamic and it, I try. that underscoring of sense of care that kind of comes through in your philosophy. I love that. Let's shift a little bit to your scholarship now. And you've talked about your work around rural and working class and all of that informed by identity. You want to talk a little bit about some things you've done that 
you're really proud of or emerging projects that you're excited about, whatever you want to share, talk to us a little bit about the the research that you do. Yeah, uh, I can talk way too long about my research. So I'm glad you asked this question. Like I said before, my research really centers around, you know, how rurality and social class and queerness interact with higher education. I look a lot at rural students in higher education and thinking about how we can foster their access, success, and equity in post-secondary spaces. And so with rural students in particular, that's popped up in a couple of different ways. Um, so I'm working on some manuals scripts right now that have been way too long in the making, but you know, you do research and life happens, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so a couple of those projects are really centering two things. We talk about rurality as an identity and Elise Kane does some really awesome work around place-based identity um, and how rurality shows up as an identity. But actually um, some of our research is talking about sort of taking this critical um, lens to that and you know, I heard it time and time again from some of my research participants and rural students that I've interacted with, that a lot of them didn't know, not not didn't know, but didn't really classify themselves as rural or small town until they got to um, college. And they were in these spaces where they felt like they were the only small town or rural student there, or that their perspectives as a rural or small town student weren't heard or validated. And so they started to come into this rural as an identity piece. Some other scholars and I, you know, some of the people that I've already mentioned on this um, uh, podcast, we've been looking at how that sort of identity development takes place within institutional environments that may feel marginalizing to those students. But in turn, when you take that critical identity development lens to it, that can help folks understand who they are from an identity perspective. So that's been a really interesting project that stems from a larger project that we really have been um, working on for a while that takes a strengths-based and critical lens to rural students in higher education. So a lot of literature and me sort of media coverage around rural populations in the U.S. is often deficit-based. And so it's talking about, oh, these poor rural students, we need to save them with higher education. Here's all the disadvantages that they face. Here's how they're deficient. And we're really saying, actually, post-secondary environments can be pretty marginalizing for rural students, um, especially when rural students are underrepresented in higher education. Rural students bring a wealth of, you know, strengths and um, capital and abilities and attributes to campuses to succeed even in spite of that marginalization. And so we're really focusing on what are the strengths that rural students bring to succeed on campuses and how can we acknowledge those strengths as higher education institutions. So those are a couple of projects that have been really important to me in the rural sphere. Um, one of the biggest pieces related to that is that a lot of scholars have focused on access for rural students, especially in recent years. Um, but we're thinking about what happens for those students once they get onto campuses. We know that attainment rates for rural students are even direer than um, uh, access and enrollment rates for rural students. So we're really thinking about, okay, yes, we want to get these students to college. What happens to them on campuses and how can we better support them um, and, you know, through their higher education attainment um, and completion of a degree. Uh, so that's been really important for me um, with rurality overall. But I also, as I went throughout my uh, doctoral studies and um, as I continued to look at the literature and hearing from rural students, um, I saw that also there were a lot of intersections or interactions between rurality and social class and queerness. And so obviously those are some of my identities. So I'm pretty attuned to sort of, you know, how that might show up. Um, but as I talked to students, it felt like it was showing up for other students as well. 
And so my dissertation research really focused on rural poor and working class students and how they culturally transition into and navigate higher education institutions. And so when we talk about modern rurality, we can see that poverty rates are the highest um, in rural areas among any geographic locale in the U.S. We can see how sort of modern rurality and social class are linked in that way. And so there's going to be sort of compound barriers for rural poor and working class students around rowdy and around social class and how does that show up in higher education you know campuses for those um, students who have those two identities or background factors that was you know a project that I've continued to expand upon um, I'm going to be looking at the cultural experiences of rural poor and working class students in particular at community colleges in Wyoming in the coming year and so you know my my dissertation research, focus broadly, um, especially during COVID when we were just, you know, having to do research over Zoom. Um, mm -hmm. it, I was looking at students at a variety of institutions, but actually we had, we didn't have a lot of representation of community college students. Um, and we know that community colleges are such, you know, large beacons of higher education for rural poor and working class communities. And so we're going to be diving deeper into what that means for rural poor and working class students at community colleges. But then the last sort of piece that's been burgeoning in this recent years is rural queer students um, in higher education. So my friend uh, Brody Tate, who went to college with me, is from Wyoming. We wrote an autoethnographic chapter that talked about our experiences of being rural and being queer and feeling like, you know, you're in conservative rural spaces that may not feel safe for you to be queer. And then you go into higher education and you maybe have this sort of little light of acceptance because you're in a space that maybe is more, you know, freeing or a little bit more liberal for you, but then you feel out of place as a rural student. And so you constantly sort of navigate this um, insider outsider paradox of feeling like you don't belong in either space. And so there's this idea that just because, you know, you go to college, you get to come out and you get to be safe and free, but that's not really the sort of narrative that these rural queer students, you know, at least we felt um, was happening. And so I'm going to continue that research. Um, I have a grant from the University of Mississippi to do um, some work around rural queer students in higher ed at a large university in the South and think about, is this happening for other students out there? And how can we expand this to make sure that we're supporting students at the intersections of those rural and queer identities? So I'm excited about all this upcoming research. There's a lot of areas that I focus on, but you know that's sort of what's on my docket for right now. And at the crux of it is all rurality, but how you know many, many topics touch those, you know, touch that area of rurality. Right. So you know, you've got the projects that you're working on, there are always more opportunities. So when you're deciding, yeah, this is something that I want to pursue, how do you make the decision about the projects that you're going to be a part of and the ones that even though they might be of interest, you just have to let go because time is a thing, right? So how do you make those decisions? I'm really thankful to my mentors because I think good mentors will help you say, like they have to me, you know, what's your sort of narrative or what's your agenda? What do you really care about? What are you really passionate about? And if a project doesn't seem to align with that agenda, um, it's not that it's not important, but it's just I have too many things going on to sort of go off on side projects that maybe don't align with that narrative or that agenda. And so I think if, you know, you're really thinking about what should I say yes and what should I say no to? Think about what really drives you and what you're passionate about. Don't go sort of, you know, grabbing at any different things. Think about those passions and and 
then you know what's the narrative and agenda around that and and how do projects feed into that i think it can be really helpful in saying you know no if something doesn't exactly feed into that agenda or that narrative that you have i will say very honestly that i try my hardest to say no but i'm not the best at it all the time but i've gotten better at it as i've gone throughout my doctoral program and into a faculty role um i felt like as a student who was so new to all of this that I needed to say yes to everything. And that's not true. There will be many other opportunities that come your way. Even if you feel like you left, missed out on an opportunity, you did not because there will be something that comes along your way. Um, so I just wanted to give that advice to folks. The other thing that I wanted to say, when I was working at the American Council on Education, we had these sort of like brown bag, like, you know, lunch and learn things. And a scholar came in and talked about the idea of you know how important collaboration is and so there may be a time where you don't say no but you say okay i'm going to be third author or fourth author but i want to collaborate with you all and so if you're all collaborating together you know what's the saying about uh many hands makes light work or something right. like that right. yeah. and so if you can rely on that type of thinking you'll not only get different perspectives and different worldviews and you know different expertise when you're collaborating with others but also you don't have to take it all on yourself whatever level you're at um uh, at the time you can sort of get that experience and, and you know provide um that labor for the project and so i really try to stick with that of most of the time I'm collaborating with others so it doesn't feel like I'm out here floating along, you know, having to say yes and no to every single thing. It's a little bit more complex than that. Mm -hmm. Well, I and I think that's an important point, whether you're a faculty member or a practitioner, show up and do good work and additional opportunities will find you. So yep. better to say no if it's just not the right fit. And like yeah. you said, maybe being third author but doing that work well, finding people that you can do scholarship with is much harder than I thought it would be. But everybody has their own style and approach. So yep. I appreciate what you're saying. Definitely. What about all the other stuff? You know, it's the job is more than teaching and research. What are other things that you're involved with sort of fill your cup or get you inspired and excited? We all have some of those tasks that's like, I wish I wasn't on that committee, but, you know, I got to do my part. Yeah. Um, institutionally, I am on the committee for student success here on campus. And so that I'm so new to the University of Mississippi that it's been a really good experience for me to be able to learn about what's happening with undergraduate students and on campus and you know who are we serving and who are we supporting and how do we do that so that's something that i've been involved with over the past academic year and will continue to be involved with here at the university of mississippi which is really nice you know as a rural scholar um, and a rural student myself um, I've been really fortunate to be involved in a variety of opportunities related to rural students. There are programs like the UGA um, Rural Student Success Unconference that I've been involved with for the past few years, being a facilitator and being a keynote panelist, sort of thought partner in that um, work. An event like that allows you to think about who was I as a rural student and how can we best support rural students? And to have practitioners and policymakers and researchers all involved in a, they call it an unconference because it's more about like talking and speaking together versus like being presented at, which I kind of like, but being involved in a space like that is, it's just been really cool for me because I think about, okay, this is like on the ground work where we can like really shape the experiences of rural students. 
And relatedly, um, I do some work um, with the LinFest Foundation. Um, they have a scholars program called the LinFest Scholars, where they work with a lot of rural and small town students um, in Pennsylvania. And they provide um, financial aid for them to go to school anywhere in the country um, that the student chooses. Um, but they also provide sort of support resources and guidance. Um, and then they have like Zoom events as well as their community weekend. And so I've been involved in both Zoom events and their community weekend, um, working with students and thinking about, um, you know, if you're in high school, what's the transition going to be like into college for you as a rural student? And then sometimes I've worked with the students where they're already in college and it's let's reflect on your you know past first year and what was that transition like for you and how can you sort of find success moving forward in the rest of college. And so, again, those are it's sort of on the ground work where I was, um you know, uh, doing the community week in, in June with uh, rural students. And it was just so cool to hear directly from these rural and small town students about what they were worried about going into college and, you know, what they're um, thinking about as they apply to college and how we can sort of best support them and, you know, being a rural small town student and going to these spaces that might feel different than what they're used to. And so that's just been really exciting for me as a rural student and scholar. And then the other spaces that I want to make sure and give a shout out to um, are ASH, the Association for the Study of Higher Education, and AERA, the American Educational Research Association. ASH has been a place where I've been able to present some you know, rural research, but I also have been able to be involved. We just finished our last meeting yesterday on the Graduate Student Scholarship Committee. And so I've been able to you know, present research, but also... Uh, serve the association in ways that makes it more accessible, hopefully for um, graduate students and other folks who want to, you know, be a part of the association. And then with AERA, um, they have the Rural Education Special Interest Group. And those are my peeps. Like, those are the people who just get what I do, who are so kind and so loving and supporting. Um, we always end up at conferences together, at AERA together, and we always have drinks and hang out. And um, it's just a space where I feel like, yes, I can present my research to that special interest group, but I also can, you know, collaborate with them in other ways and just be in community with, with them. And so those are some ways that, you know, institutionally, um, you know, sort of externally and then in associations that I find that I really care about the work that I'm doing and I'm able to give back in ways that, like you said, fill my cup um, and don't always feel like, you know, service op obligations. It just feels like a way to give back to the communities that have been so instrumental in my success. And hang out with people you like. So I know, exactly. But for real, it's so, it's so reward. Rewarding is the wrong word, but it really does, just like you said, fill your cup. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Well, you talked about this a little bit when you were talking about scholarship, but is there anything you're working on? And it could be research, but maybe it's a different type of project. Anything that you are excited about or it's your chance to sort of pitch, hey, check out, you know, whatever it might be. So what what would you like to highlight there? Yeah, um, I just had a couple recent publications um, come out. One was in the Peabody Journal of Education. Um, I worked with Karen Gans, who's a scholar practitioner at the University of Colorado Boulder um, on that piece. Karen was one of the first people that I got to read um, who put an article out about rural students um, and their transition into college back in 2016. So now it's so cool that we're getting to work together um, in this space. But um, we, we actually did an integrative literature review and thinking about what do we know about rural college student success um, up for students on campuses. So, you know, there is a lot more access literature and a lot more access work being done, like I said, around rural students 
um, out there in higher education, especially in recent years. But Karen and I were thinking, well, then that sort of leaves a gap of these students aren't graduating as high of rates as we want them to. And what's happening for these students on campuses? And so we did an integrative literature review and thinking about what do we know? Where can we go from here with research and practice and policy related to those students? And I'm excited that that piece um, is out in Peabody recently. And uh, if you ever want a copy of it, please don't hesitate to let me know. But um, you can definitely Google Ty McNamee, Karen Gans, and there will be that piece out there. The other piece that just came out um, is in the Journal of Education Human Resources, and it's thinking about um, rural faculty development. That's a little bit of a smaller area of my research agenda, but there was a special issue coming out human resources issues in rural higher education spaces. And so I had this paper that was thinking about rural faculty development with faculty who are in rural post-secondary spaces. And so I worked with a master's student um, at Indiana University, Austin Van Horn, who's now um, working as a practitioner out in the field. And we talked about you know, for rural community college faculty, how does the rural context intersect with being a community college faculty member at these small rural community colleges? So this was another integrative literature review and thinking about what do we know out there? Where can we do more research in this area? Um, what From what we know, how can we shape practice and policy to best support these faculty? And so this is a really new area. We were only able to find, you know, 21 really empirical or peer reviewed or, you know, solid scholarly sources um, out there about this space. So if anyone is ever looking to do more work in rural faculty development, that's a big, big passion of Austin's. It's a pretty, you know, large part of my um, research agenda. So I'm happy to talk about that. Um, but those two publications are out there and I'm excited to continue working on more publications and the research projects that I meant before, you know, as we continue to move forward, like I said, um, this is a place where with rural community college students, or excuse me, with rural poor and working class students at rural community colleges in Wyoming, that study that I'm doing, I get to give back to the state that I'm a part of. And with this rural queer project that I'm doing, you know, it's a, it's a place for me to explore what that was like for me as a rural queer student, but hopefully be able to support students in their rural queer journeys as well through higher education. Your work with community colleges, I'm very excited about because we, we know this, we've known it forever, that that is just an understudied wealth of information. The fact that you're engaging with students and, and faculty in those environments huge contribution. So thanks Thank for that. You so part. much. Yeah, I mean, I did dual enrollment in high school through Central Wyoming College. And so I think it's really important that we just acknowledge all the work that those places are doing, especially for impoverished communities and especially with fewer resources. And so I, I'm, I'm glad that I'll get to um, do a case study at a few of these uh, rural community colleges in Wyoming that really serve a lot of these rural poor and working class students. And I'm so proud of the work that they're doing. And hopefully we can highlight what it's like for the students there and, you know, how we can learn from those institutions to do better at our work. Absolutely. Are there things that, because I'm, I'm guessing that there are going to be people listening to this episode who are thinking about going the faculty route. And so as you sort of found yourself on that track, what were some expectations or what vision did you have for being a faculty member? And if you would talk a little bit about if there were things that surprised you, good or bad, or things that you're like, I was absolutely right about this. I knew it was going to be <laughs> like this. So what? how did your 
dream of being a faculty member? How has that sort of matched what your experience has been? So I do want to give a shout out to uh, the higher and post-secondary education program at Teachers College, because I will say I was not surprised by a lot in my first year as a faculty member. Um, there's a focus in that program on college teaching and learning and the college professoriate and, and how, you know, the three buckets of, um, you know, research, teaching and service and all those sorts of things. So I will say I wasn't surprised by that much. So this question, when I was thinking about it, really sort of stumped me. But, you know, as I can look back on my first year um, on the faculty route, I had a few things that I was like, oh, yeah, I, I definitely should mention that if anyone's considering faculty. Um, and so I do want to couch what I'm saying with I'm on the tenure track. I'm at a research one institution. So this will be my experience. It may not be everybody's experience on the faculty track. But if you're looking at, you know, tenure track research institutions, uh, they start talking about tenure like right away. Uh, I met with my department chair and talked about what the tenure process will look like, um, you know, what your your either annual or three year or whatever it is reviews will look like, and how you can start preparing yourself now for tenure down the road. It's not that that's surprising, but I was very much like, okay, we're here. This is like something I need to be thinking about already. And so I would say, make sure that you're ready for that and that whatever your tenure process is at your institution, <clears throat> have those conversations because uh, it's something that you can, you know, proactively do along the way versus like creating a tenure dossier, you know, at the end of whatever year you're going up for tenure. The other thing that was really surprising to me, and I guess it shouldn't have been, but if you're at an institution that really supports your travel to conferences and doing presentations, there is a lot of travel and a lot of travel paperwork. And so we know that higher ed loves bureaucracy, but I would say that I spent hours and hours doing travel paperwork for both advances and reimbursements. And then I spent a lot of time traveling to conferences to try to get those presentations, get your research out there, you know, meet with people, et cetera, et cetera. And so in my first year, um, I went to, uh, I mean, five or six conferences and it can be exhausting. And so I just want folks to know that that is surprising, but also if you're proactive about it, take care of yourself. Don't travel too much. I know everybody wants you to go to their conferences, but don't you know think you have to go to every single conference because it is a lot um, going into your first year, especially your first couple of years when you're really trying to get out there and get yourself seen. Um, and then the other piece that was kind of surprising is, you know, I have been in this rural space for a while, but once you become a faculty member, it's funny how quickly you're seen as an expert in the field that you're a part of. And so people will be reaching out for interviews or people will be reaching out for your expertise on panels and all these sorts of things. And that's all good, but it happens quickly. So like we were talking about before, just be ready to say no, or if you don't feel like you're ready to be that expert in the area that they're you know looking at, that's okay too. But just know that sort of with that faculty title comes some idea of expertise that whether you fulfill that or not, you just have to know that that's happening in the back of your mind. That's great. Do you have any advice that you would give? Words that were given to you that you're like, I'm so glad somebody told me that or things based on your own experience that if somebody is thinking about this, whether they're a practitioner or a graduate student getting ready, what, what advice do you have? Yeah, like the biggest piece of advice that I, you know, um, want to give right away 
is that academia will oftentimes make people feel like they're not enough. They're not doing enough. They don't know enough. They're not smart enough. And especially for folks who have minoritized and marginalized identities that have been underrepresented or minoritized and marginalized in the academy, it will sort of drag you down sometimes and make you feel like you're not enough. But my biggest piece of advice is that you are enough. You know enough. You're smart enough. You know just as much as other people out there, whether they other people like to admit that or not. You have done the graduate training. You have done the classes. You have done the research. Just know that you are enough. And when that imposter syndrome, especially for folks with those minoritized and marginalized identities, creeps up within your head, you just got to be able to lean on others for support and yourself and knowing that you are enough. So that's like my biggest piece of advice for everybody. And related is sort of like leaning on others, find some mentors and find a community of support out there. Like I mentioned before, um, with people like, you know, Kenny and Milagros and Noah and Darius, Sanja, Vanessa, all those people are big mentors for me and a big community of support for me as you go, you know, as I go through this wild ride that is academia. And so academia has a lot of things that are confusing, that don't make sense, that have been sort of uh, bureaucratic structures for hundreds of years. And so if you can find those mentors that can guide you through that, that can support you through that, definitely do so. Um, and then finally, you know, related to what I was mentioning before, figure out what you're really interested in and really passionate about. Because not only will that help you land a job because people will have an, uh, an idea of what you want to do with your research trajectory, but also it keeps you interested and passionate about what you're doing. Um, you know, there are a lot of opportunities out there to do higher education research or to teach classes. But if you aren't, um, you know, sort of finding what you're passionate about and interested in, you will probably get burnt out pretty quickly. And so at the end of the day, I'm always like, I get to do, you know, teaching research and service around rural students, rural poor and working class students, rural queer students, rural faculty. I'm really interested in those topics and they're near and dear to my heart. And so it does drive me to keep going. And so if you can find that, definitely do, because otherwise I worry that, the, you know, this sort of academic machine will will not be as friendly to you. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful. There really is a theme of community through almost every single thing that you've talked about today. So I think oh, your, your advice fits perfectly with how you've engaged in this conversation. So, well, the I sometimes feel like this is the most important question, but anything I forgot to ask you or anything else that you want to share or closing thoughts as we start to wrap up the episode? No, this has been a really good conversation. My only thing that I would say um, to sort of wrap up the conversation is really based upon what you just said related to community. I am always happy to talk with folks um, that are applying to doctoral programs or considering applying to doctoral programs that are thinking about the faculty life, that want to talk about rural students, poor and working class students, queer students. I am very much about, I will share all the information that I have and all the advice and guidance that I have. I'll just be a friend or supporter or whatever it is, but please don't hesitate to reach out. Um, I'm on Twitter at TyCMcNamee. Um, and I'm also, you know, you can look up my email at the University of Mississippi and the higher ed faculty. I'm happy to chat with anybody that would like to talk about 
this, you know, sort of wild train of academia and how you navigate all of that um, or any interests and passions that you have. Wonderful. Well, thank you. And I, I will not be surprised if you get a few, Hey, so you said this thing, you got me to do that. Yes, please don't be shy folks. Reach out. I love it. Well, thank you one more time. I do have one kind of final question. Um, And this is really about hope and joy. So as you think about your world, it can be work-related, but maybe it's something that doesn't have anything to do with your work. What's something that's giving you hope right now? That's a really good question because that book, The Midnight Library, is so interesting because it talks about you'll you know you'll go through hardship and you'll go through all of these things in life but you've got to sort of find the hope to like you know continue going um throughout that so one of the things that I'm, I'm very big about is mental health um I personally I don't like to say suffer but I have uh, obsessive compulsive disorder anxiety and depression and those have really affected me from junior high all the way to present day and so I go to therapy, I'm on psych medications, um, it helps a lot. And my therapist the other day reminded me to go outside and go for a walk. And so I don't know if folks know about Oxford, Mississippi that much, but actually it's a really literary space. William Faulkner had his house out here and he, he named that estate Roanoke. And so there are these trails around Roanoke where you can get off into the trees. And um, I take my dog out there and I'm in sort of nature and it's a really cool feeling. And this, the Midnight Library, I'm not stealing ideas from them. It was cool. It just kind of serendipitously happened. They talk about this sort of, you know, connection between you and the earth. And I think that's really important to think about at the end of the day, you're sort of a human being and we, you know, get rid of all the social media and get rid of all the academia stuff and everything and it's like me and my dog and a rock floating in space and I think that's really cool to sort of give you hope of like it's going to be okay because at the end of the day you're breathing you're on this earth you're a human being and you have to remember that and even with all the you know extra noise going on I love it um I would also guess that in uh, Oxford Mississippi in July and August you're also probably sweating very much so i'm glad that there's a lot of trees on that trail because it really shaded me otherwise i would not have been able to make it through uh that day (laughs) well i think that's great advice and i think if we all can just take a moment and be it things will fall into place a lot of the time or at least will make some peace with some of the things that are going on so exactly i was gonna say make that peace or at least you know have a little bit of clarity about that yeah for sure yeah well ty thank you again this has been a really fun conversation and a super easy episode to do so i i just want to thank you for the way that you showed up and just kind of chatted with me today of course thanks again for inviting me Uh, this was a very easy conversation to have um, and i appreciate you letting me you know be in community with everybody that might be listening out there and with you wonderful Well, today's Essay Today podcast is brought to you by SAXA. As always, we thank them for their support. Don't forget that the SAXA conference will be happening this year, November 4th through 6th in Atlanta, Georgia. Check out the SAXA website for more information, and we hope to see you there. As we close, I'd like to leave with a quote. And today's quote is from Socrates. You may have heard of him. He's 
kind of well-known. Um, but the quote is, the secret of change is to focus all your energy, not on fighting the old, but on building the new. My name is Michelle Botcher, and it has been a pleasure to host this episode. Have a beautiful day.